This morning we're back into the Gospel of John, and uh, we're in John chapter 4. But before we, uh, we get in into the text this morning, I have a few things I just wanted to share. I, I didn't get any strong opposition to this in the first service, so hopefully it goes the, the same this service, but we'll see if you're listening here. I believe our church needs to be seeker-sensitive. I've said it. I didn't say this when I was interviewing for the job, but I've said it now. How many emails I'm going to get during the week, right? And I also don't believe that we should just be a little seeker-sensitive either. No, I think we should be sold out, wholly engaged in the idea of seeker-sensitivity. Because this is the highest calling of the church. I have some eyebrows up. I know a lot of you have attended a number of different churches, probably throughout the decades and in our area maybe, and right now you're raging quietly, waiting for me to get to my point, but hear me out, because I want to define some terms of what I mean by this seeker sensitive, before you pick up your stuff and dash out the door. Usually in our culture, seeker sensitive churches are defined and designed to, to be short on doctrine and big on entertainment. There are unfortunately too many churches that are packed to the gills with people who love the style of the church, but show little or no true life change. And maybe they preach sermons occasionally that are not horrible. Sometimes they open the Bible. There are some churches I found that even offer up drive-up services. You can get your oil changed while you're there. We're not going to do that here. <laughs> there are churches uh, that build, build a program, build a setting uh, to bring people in, to entertain them all along the while. The message is clouded. It's lost. This is what the world would define as seeker-sensitive. But this is not a biblical definition of seeker-sensitivity. This morning, as we look at John chapter 4, you'll see, hopefully, I hope, of the biblical definition as Jesus talks about seeking, the seeker sensitivity and what it means biblically. As I said, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 26 verses of this chapter. John chapter 4, starting at verse 1, the scriptures on the screen behind me there. Follow with me as I read. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. 
And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. Join me in prayer before we dive in. Father, what a powerful passage that we have here this morning. Huh? An incredible story of, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So many things happening here, so many parts of this discussion. God, I ask that you would give us clarity this morning as we look at your word. God, I ask, I beg that your people would hear from you and not from me in this. That your spirit would be our teacher, our guide. That you would bring things that maybe seem confusing clearer. I pray for everyone here this morning that you would recognize that you, Jesus, you are the living water. And that you require living worship. Help us to understand this morning. Convict us. Challenge us. Cha change us today, God. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been in John and, and the setting here. I want to point out a few things as we enter in John chapter 4. You know, this, there's an interaction here. You see the primary point of the whole message is Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And the first thing I want you to notice is, is verse four. Where really, it really sets the stage of what's gonna happen in this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John writes for us in verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. And so when I read that, I began to study. Okay, I, I even pulled up maps and through Logos. Sorry, I wanna see the passageway. Do you wanna know something interesting? Jesus didn't have to travel through Samaria. Like that was the only route. I, I read it that way. Maybe you read it too. But that, that must be the only route or that must be the best route. That's why John says he, they had to pass through Samaria. It's, it's kind of like when you're describing, if I were to say, you know, where do we live? Someone's coming to our house. I might say, you know, from the church to where we are in Puyallup, just go up 167 because Meridian just gets blocked at a certain point in time. And you just don't want to mess with that. Just go around because it's, it's more convenient. Okay? The, the most direct route would be probably Meridian up for, through our house. But Jesus here, 
And John writes it, it says, this is, this is, he had to do this. He had to, to go through Samaria. It was not the most convenient route. So why? Why did he have to go to Samaria? Well, I want you to underline verse four. I said this to you a while ago. As long as you own the Bible, you're not borrowing someone else's Bible, underline it. And then right next to verse four, write this. Jesus had to go to Samaria because he loved people. He had to go through Samaria because he loved people. And that's gonna set the stage for this whole entire passage we're gonna look at here. Jesus was compelled to obey the will of the Father and he took the disciples on an inconvenient route to preach the gospel because he loved people. He pursued people. I remember June 27, 2003. Katie, do you remember that day? June 27, 2003. Anyone else remember that day? Nothing significant happened, but that day sticks in my mind. It was the day, the first time I've ever been able to go to a baseball game in Detroit and sit in the luxury box. You know, those boxes up there that are really nice. You know, you get a good view. You get a, a buffet. Apparently, you just keep eating. They just keep bringing food. And a friend of mine invited me. He had someone else, a connection, and said, hey, you want to come see a game? I'm like, yes, absolutely. And, and I got to watch the Tiger game in a luxury box. They even had uh, tickets for people, a part of it. They can go into the field. So I was on the, on, not on the field, sorry. I'm not that good. I, the, the first row, and I could see everything. And it was incredible experience for a lifelong baseball fan. I played the Arizona Diamondbacks. I remember that. But I don't remember who won. I didn't stay for the entire game. You know why? Because on June 27th in 2003, my fiance was on a long business trip and she was coming home on her birthday. And I knew this. It was not convenient for me to leave Detroit to drive up to Flint, but I did. And I was leaving, my, my buddy who invited me said, where are you going? And I said, I have to leave. I, I want to go see my soon-to-be bride. Why? <laughs> He's a good friend. I said, I'm, I'm going to see the one I love. This is Jesus coming through Samaria. He didn't have to, from the human standpoint, go through Samaria. There was more convenient routes. There's even better routes. But John says he had to because of love. He loved this woman. He left the convenient route to preach the gospel to her. You know, the second thing I want you to notice in the setting and setting up the stories in verse 6 it says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. John says that Jesus was tired. Does that bring comfort to you this morning? Jesus, God, in the flesh, got tired. We can relate to that, right? Even Jesus got tired. And so he shows us this morning in this passage his full humanity, and yet he's God, and he was tired. He was a man, he got hungry, he got thirsty, and he got tired. But, but that's not necessarily what I want you to see. I want you to see the reaction of, of who Jesus is and what he does when he's tired. What happens when Jesus is tired in this passage? Does he say, like myself, don't bother me right now, I'm tired. 
I had a long week. I'm exhausted. Can't you see that I'm tired? He doesn't say that. He begins an interaction with a woman. Pastor's wife, Ann Ortland, once said this. She said, nowhere in the Bible are we told to slow down and take it easy. Uh Uh-oh. I think we're all in trouble now. In the Bible, we're told to press on, to not be weary in well-doing, but we should run the race. And I realized, I was convicted this week that we will never do great things for God in this world until we have learned to minister when we are tired. But you know what our problem is? This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's a good one, I hope. And our problem is, as I was thinking through this more, and even trying to counsel myself as I'm looking at Scripture, our problem is, is that we desire a separate life. Meaning, we want a proper division of life so that we can manage it. And so we, we divide our life into the sacred and the secular. And we really don't want those two to touch. It's easier for us to keep a handle on, on both of those parts of our life, if they're separate. Let me define terms a little bit so you understand what I'm saying. When I talk about secular, I'm not meaning it's second class necessarily, but what I mean is it's an activity that has no spiritual beginning, okay? It wasn't developed or instituted by the church or scripture, but in our lives, it's necessary, like, like work. For those of you who don't work at a church or a mission organization or a religious organization, you work a secular job. It's not a less of a job. That's just where God has you. And then we have the sacred, meaning it finds its basis in the Bible, like evangelizing, studying the word, praying, ministering to people, talking about God, the sacred. But at a very early age in American Christianity, we're taught to divide, to separate those two. We we, we were taught to, to not let those two touch. We learn it, don't we? I mean, how many of you have heard it said and say it to others, we're going to church? We don't go to church. We are the church. Where do we go? We go to a building and we worship. But we say it. I say it. I find myself saying it and I correct myself. I'm bringing up another generation to say it wrong. We don't go to church. We are the church. So be the church. And we begin to to live our lives as task-oriented people doing secular tasks, not not necessarily because they're sinful or bad. They're not. And then we do the sacred tasks. And when we get tired in life of one or the other, when we get wore out, we begin to pit the sacred against the secular. And we begin to choose to separate them even more. What would happen in life if we brought them together? Can I say this morning that that your life shouldn't be segregated between the sacred and the secular, but you, you should live your life in such a way that they mesh, that they're one. Your job as a believer is not to find balance between your life as a Christian and your life as a human being. If you're saved here this morning, You live in this world as a believing human being. Don't separate. Don't segregate your life. Learn to mesh. Learn to realize it's all one. I remember when Katie worked at Russell Investments in Tacoma, and she began to work there. They would jokingly 
uh, it was a joke for a while. I was working part-time. I was at a church, and, and uh, they would call her my sugar mama. <laughs> she made all the money, and I just went to school. But she went to, to work, and people get to know her and start asking her questions, and then they'd ask, well, what does your husband do? You know, does he sit at home the whole time? And say, no, he's a part-time pastor. And they're like, oh, oh he is. And then they would ask. The next question with a number of people, they would say, does he talk and act the same way at home as he does at church? See, for them, they've seen segregated. They see secular and sacred. Maybe they've had a bad view of a pastor. And they, and they ask that somehow like there's supposed to be a difference. But before we even get to the meat of the text, and folks, this is just introduction, so buckle up, right? Because this question is important to the, the content of what we're going to cover here. Does your sacred life mesh with your secular life? Are you two different people or just one? You know, if I were to go around and interview your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that know you, and start asking them questions to find out, they're going to say, Really? They're a Christian? I have no idea. Or are they going to say, yeah, they're a Christian. They've been witnessing me for like three months. They stop. They just need to stop. Don't stop. You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you're called to live your entire life as a Christian. There isn't a point where you just check out and say, well, I'm just myself over here now. And then I check in with church. You're called to live your entire life as a Christian, not just on Sunday. Jesus was this type of person. In every circumstance, there was, no, there was no segregated life for Jesus. He lived as he spoke. So as we, as we transition to this story of Jesus and the Samaritan, I want you to notice two things. Two things I want to cover. First, Jesus is the living water. He's the living water. And second, he requires living worship. So he's the living water, verses 7 through 18. You know, I love the contrast. If you, if you read and you're following through the, the gospel of John, the contrast from John chapter 3 to John chapter 4. It's a striking difference of two different dialogues that Jesus has. In John chapter 3, Pastor Ryan preached on this a few weeks ago. Jesus meets the religious leader, right? You guys know who that is? This is where you can answer. Nicodemus, you're more awake than the first service, all right. He's the Jew. He's the religious leader. And in chapter 4, he meets the woman, a Samaritan. She's not a religious leader. She's a social outcast. In chapter 3, it's, it's this Pharisee, a man of high moral standing. In chapter 4, it's a woman, a woman that's of low moral standing. She was looked down upon. But Nicodemus, no, he was looked up to. He was, he was the religious standard. He was the one who always tried to do the right thing. You see the, the striking differences here as we go through this? So I ask, which one are you? Or which one were you? There's a reason, I believe, that John wants these two stories to follow each other. Because he wants, to, wants us to consider them together. One here, one there. Notice them. Read them right after one another. First, the religious person who needs Jesus, and then the non-religious person who needs Jesus. One extreme to the other. They both need Jesus. 
And both of these people are seen today in our world. And at the expense of oversimplifying things, there are two types of people that you will come in contact with in this world. Those that think they have Jesus and those that they don't know they need him. And as we study the interaction with Jesus and this woman, I realize that you will come in contact with these two types of people in your life, the religious and non-religious. So Jesus, now after traveling and leaving Judea, heads for Galilee and being prompted by the Spirit, he travels through Samaria, right? And in verse six, the end of it says it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the, the disciples leave Jesus. They're, they're running errands. Costco's open. They're going to get food. And they've been traveling. You know, I love here in this passage in particular how John clues us in. He gives us a commentary as we're reading. Did you catch that, you know? He give me a drink. Well, verse eight, for his disciples had gone into the city. Why would he need a drink? Well, they're over here. Thanks, John. Now I understand better. He's doing this. He's teaching as he's writing for us. He's giving a commentary. He's painting a picture for us. So Jesus stays at the well and the disciples leave. They're not there. They're not present for this. And the first thing that should shock us in this exchange is the radical move that, that Jesus makes by talking to a Samaritan. And not only a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. This is unusual. And in fact, it shocks the woman. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You see, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. One commentator wrote this. He said, centuries before, most of the Jews were exiled to Babylon by their conquerors. Some of the Jews who stayed behind intermarried with Canaanites and essentially formed a new tribe, the Samaritans. They took parts of the Jewish religion and parts of the Canaanite religion and, and meshed them together into a new religion. And so the Jews considered the Samaritans racially inferior and heretics. And they wanted nothing to do with them. Another reason why it was inconvenient to go through Samaria. Jesus is breaking the Jewish rules. She knows it, and she's shocked that he would dare talk with her. Furthermore, she's coming to the well to draw water at the worst possible time of the day. She comes at the sixth hour. Do you know? remember for a number of weeks ago, the Jewish time starts at 6 a.m., the day begins. So for the math majors here, six plus six, don't be shy. Madeline, six plus six, 12. It is noon. This is not the time that people go to get water. Why? It's hot. It is the, 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 the worst time to go get water. You, you go in the cool of the morning, you go in the cool of the evening, but you do not go at noon because it's hot. Well, why is she doing it? She's an outcast. She wants to slip out and not be seen. She wants to take care of what she knows she needs to, but she does not want interaction. She does not want the shame that she's probably most often received. She's a social outcast. She feels guilt. She lives in guilt. And Jesus, knowing all of this, 
borders, not only leaps over the racial borders that are never to be crossed, he crosses the gender border also and asks this woman for a drink. Remember, he's, he's thirsty. He's tired and he stopped to rest. And we can see really clearly how God sets up appointments. God brings people into our lives. But this woman, well, she's not buying it. She's shocked and her defenses have up. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's not really understanding. She's saying, where's your bucket? Dude, you gotta have a bucket to get water. She further says in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus says to her, Jesus is trying to zero in. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds, she says to him in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty again or have to come here to draw water. You know, the conversation up, to, up until verse 15 revolves around water. And for us, as Americans in 2016, I think this image of thirst is lost on us. Where do you go when you're thirsty at home? To the faucet. I don't know about you guys, but mine comes on. It's amazing. I don't think about this. I very seldomly think about where the water comes from. I just know that if I hit the faucet right, it'll come out. I only get concerned when it doesn't. This idea of, of thirst at this point. The people would, would live their lives to a certain point and their mouth become getting dry like gravel and the sun beating down. They're thirsty. They need water. So we don't have that full real concept of what Jesus and what this woman's talking about. But Jesus, the master evangelist, knows the woman knows what's happening in her heart. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is this, I've got something for you that is as basic and necessary as water is to your body. I've got the spiritual equivalent of water for your soul that will quench any desire you will have in this life. I've got something that you cannot live without, like water. But this is no ordinary water. This is life-saving water. It satisfies you from the inside out. He's talking about a deep soul satisfaction. And this, this is contentment that doesn't depend on outward circumstances. You cannot add to it. You can't take anything away from it. He says, I've got something you cannot find anywhere from this worn out earth. No other human can give it to you. You cannot earn it. You cannot achieve it. He says, I have deep soul satisfaction. Do you realize this morning that we are all looking for satisfaction either in something or someone? You come here this morning looking for something more. Every one of you. Those of you here this morning who are Christians, who are believers, trusting in Christ for salvation, you know that you've found what you've been looking for, but maybe, just maybe, you've forgotten it. 
You've forgotten it lately. There's still others that are still looking. So I ask, what will make you happy? What will make you satisfied? What will give you a satisfying life? For most of you, if you think really hard and long about this, it's something that comes from the outside of you. You know, my wife and I just bought our first home. We've rented for years, and we purchased our first home. I didn't know what to expect after we purchased it. Didn't know what would happen. Like, am I going to wake up the next morning and have this warm, fuzzy feeling inside my chest and be like, oh, I have a home. <laughs> All my worries are gone. Didn't happen. I mean, we love our house. We're thankful the Lord provided it for us, but I didn't have any of those things. I didn't, I didn't wake up feeling more complete, more satisfied of the owning a home. It's a building. It's concrete. It's wood. It's nails. It's payments for the next 30 years. <laughs> I cannot find my satisfaction in my home. I will always be disappointed and poor. Some of you here have hopes of romantic love. Some have hope to have children. Some have hope to move up the corporate ladder to gain prestige, to gain recognition. Stollers have hope to have money. But whatever it is that makes you say, if I have that, and if I get that, then I'll know I'm important. Then I'll know I have significance. And I'll know I have security that you so desperately want. And if that's the case, it's most likely something that comes from outside of you. And Jesus says, there is nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy your soul. Nothing. There's nothing outside of you that can take away this thirst that is deep down inside of you. And Jesus says to you this morning, that I can give you absolute deep satisfaction in the core of your being, regardless of what happens on the outside regardless of the circumstances in your life. But you know what happens in this world is that so many people miss this and they don't understand this. They don't understand that their real needs can be met in Jesus because they look around and they hear and they begin to become convinced again and again that if they just work a little harder, work a little longer, if they risk a little more, then they can get their satisfaction here. Their thirst would be satisfied. You know, as long as you think there's a pretty good chance that you might achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think that you have a shot of success and experience this inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope, so you, you remain almost completely oblivious to the, to the fact that your deep thirst is still there and will never be quenched. And most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals. And so we live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depths of our spiritual thirst. Everybody's living for something, right? That's what we, we hear. It's what we see. And so what does this woman 
here at the well living for? Well, Jesus draws it out. Look at verse 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You wonder why Jesus brings this up. I asked for the husband. Is he just is he being dense? Maybe he's just trying to prove a point. This isn't how Jesus is. He's not insidious towards our hurts, only to draw them out and then stomp on them and say, told you so. Jesus is not a jerk. You remember in a chapter ago, chapter three, verse 20, it says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. She can't open herself up to the living water because her inner life is a complete mess. She knows that that light will expose the mess. It's too painful for her. It's too dirty to show. And Jesus knows this. That this idea of having new living water to her spiritual life is, is further compounded for her because of the years of sexual and relational sin. You know, something that you, we all know, right? We need to emphasize again, but you, you cannot come to God unless you realize that you need him. She's dead. She's hard, blind. She's lost. Jesus understands her perfectly. I want you to also notice this woman is not seeking Jesus. He seeks her. She's not looking for God. Her response would go through it. She'd rather keep her life hidden. She's not looking for God. He comes and finds her. You can catch it in her words. Did you, did you catch that at the end of verse 15? And it says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again or have to come back here to draw water. You almost her, her saying, I, I don't want to come back here. I don't want to come back at noon. I don't want to come back to this well and feel the shame because of my sin. I don't want to do that. Give me the real water. She, she has the guilt, she, she has the shame, she recognizes that she needs something more, but she doesn't know what to do. All she knows is she wants to get out of that. She wants to leave it forever. Everybody has got to live for something. And Jesus is arguing for you right now, he's saying, if I am not that thing, it will fail you. If you live for anything else other than for Jesus, first it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, whether it's money, sex, power, stuff, you will tell yourself that you have to have it or your life will end meaningless. That means if anything threatens it, you'll become scared. If anyone blocks it, you become angry. And if you fail to achieve it, you'll never be able to forgive yourself. And second, and this is even more frightening, if you do not achieve it, it will, if it, it will fail to deliver on all the promises that you dreamed it would bring, meaning you will, you will remain unfulfilled. 
if you do achieve it, if you somehow get what you're after, it won't fulfill all that you thought it would. Sin, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And what was the Samaritan woman living for? Relationships. Jesus knows this. He knows her. He is the master evangelist. And he goes right to the issue which, which most affects this woman. And it's her love for men. You know, Jesus did this throughout the ministry, his ministry on earth. And sometimes I read the stories and think, just give me some of that insight, God, as I come to someone. Because he knows. He stands before someone and he, he goes directly to what's the issue in their heart. He's God. He can do that. You remember the, the rich young ruler. For those of you part of the adult Bible study, it happens on Tuesday and Thursdays. You guys just covered this, right? In Mark chapter 10. You should know this passage, right? And Jesus, again, zeroes in. He says in, in Mark 10, 17, and as he set on the journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Check. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, check. Do not bear false witness, check. Do not defraud, check. Honor your father and mother, check. Sweet. He's like, I, I'm there, Jesus. I, I have it. And then verse 20. Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, he says, said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Why did he leave sorrowful? Why doesn't he just do exactly what Jesus said? If he believes that who, who he is, that he's, extraordinary, why wouldn't he do what he says? Why doesn't he go and sell what he has? I mean, Jesus is not even being greedy here. He says, go and sell and give to the poor. It'd be a lot different if he says, go and sell and come fund my ministry. He might be more questioning. Hold on a second. You want me for my money. Jesus doesn't want his money. But Jesus knows his heart and he knows from what's holding him back from really committing his life to Christ. And for him, for this man, it was money. It was stuff. It says he went away sorrowful. Meaning he didn't do it. He rejects Christ. Because he loved stuff. So what's holding you back right now? Maybe you're saved. Maybe you're you are a believer here, but really you have been fallen into a fringe, a valley of life. You know that you're not really giving your all. You're, you're not really committed to God, to serving him, you're just passing by. I mean, you probably have good excuses. Like you used to do that. You were committed and you gave 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 and then someone burned you. And you think, I'm not doing that again. I'm wise now. I'm not going down that path. Or maybe your reason is this. I did my time. When I was young, I had all this time and I gave it. And, and now things are different. Life is different. 
Or maybe you, you're here and you know all the church lingo. You come to church every time the doors are open, but you really don't want God to penetrate your life. You know, your real life outside of church. On Sundays, you're a Christian, but on weekdays, you're just Phil or Stacy. Or maybe you're tired. Uh-oh. John already talked about this, right? You've got kids now, and kids are exhausting. Let me tell you, they wake up every day, they wake up too early every day, they always want to eat like we somehow starved them the last night, and they whine, they get angry, and they disobey, and they lie, and they make us repeat the same phrase over and over and over and over, they're exhausting. And we seem like, well, well, they're consuming our life, our thoughts, our every action. And in all that, God has taken the back burner. And maybe you're in that spot and you think, well, you know, I'm going to get there when they're, when they're done with high school. You know, I'm going to have more time. Or, or well, then now I have college and I need to take care of it. So they have college. And then at a wedding, <clears throat> or four. Maybe after that, I can be more available. Whatever it is that's holding you back from being fully committed to God, what would the single issue be? Maybe it's more than one than your life that Jesus is singling out. What are you holding on so tight to that you're missing out on Jesus? See, Jesus understood the Samaritan's heart and he knows your heart. And he's asking you this morning, what are you worshiping? And you think, well, hold on. We didn't say anything about worship. Jesus does. The second point here in verses 19 through 26, Jesus zeroes in again. He's not only giving real living water, he tells us that he requires living worship. So verse 19, the woman trying to deflect all that Jesus is saying says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship in the mountain, but you say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And here we go. You know, the woman's trying to change the subject. She wants to get out of the uncomfortable discussion about her husband's and her past and says, you must be a prophet or something. But your people, the Jews, they say that we Samaritans have to go to Jerusalem to worship. They tell us that's the only place. So, so yeah, that's really not going to work. I, I really can't do that. And so Jesus, well, he uses what she says as a challenge to again drive home the point that she needs to understand. And what is it? What does he say? That we are all worshipers. We all worship something. Do you, do you believe that? Do you understand that? We all worship something. I read a very convicting quote this week in preparation from an author, David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's an American writer 
He was very top of his profession. He had won many awards for his, his craft of writing. He's known throughout the world for his captivating story and, and style of writing stories. He's, and they said he wrote a, a one sentence that had over a thousand words, but you didn't know because it was so captivating. When he was asked a number of years ago before he died to give an address to the Kenyan College graduating class, you know, a, a, not a Christian school, and you can look it up, you can Google it, see the whole thing on YouTube. And this is what he says to the graduating class. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Folks, Wallace was not a Christian. He rejected Christ, he rejected the gospel, rejected a lot of other religions. In fact, he says in his speech earlier, there's no such thing as atheism because we all worship something. We're all worshipers. You know, the incredibly sad thing about this and about him is that a couple years after giving a speech, Wallace killed himself. So this non-religious man's parting words that haunt us is this, something will eat you alive. Every one of you here this morning is worshiping something. Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come inside rather than just outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. It will leave you. It will crush you. It will eat you alive. And this woman, she was worshiping her need for love, for acceptance. She had been trying to fulfill her longings by marrying men, by being with men. And Jesus stops her in her tracks and directs her to what's needed. He says, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking worshipers. That's why Jesus came. This is why we share the good news. This is our job as a church, seeker sensitivity, to seek those that would worship God. You know, John Piper says, you've heard it probably a hundred times more, missions exist because worship doesn't. We go to those places, we go to our neighbor because they're not worshiping. Yes, they're worshiping things, but not God. And we have a job to do because there's still not enough worshipers. We're, we're not home yet because we have work to do. 
the mission's not done. You find it interesting in this story that Jesus never goes back to the discussion about the adultery. He never goes back into that, that conversation. You know, it's a, an attempt that he, he, he made there and, and she really wasn't gonna go any farther and, and redirects the conversation. And I wanna pause right now in the midst of this and, and, and realizing as I was reading through it that how many times sharing the gospel with someone, I get to a point in my plan where I'm at thinking, here they are, they're on the cusp, they're understanding the gospel and then they say some weird thing and completely throw off the conversation. You know, some hot topic or weird question, right? Have you ever been there and have that, you know? You know that most people, most Christians that I know, they're hypocrites. And I'll be like, yeah, I know, I know a few of those. Anyways, I'm saying, you know, I want to just leave it and go here. That's not what Jesus does. This, this woman is trying her best to, to raise questions, to, to redirect the conversation. Jesus just goes with it redirecting her back into the main point. Doesn't ignore it. This is the, the controversy that you're bringing up. The controversy can't compare to the importance of how you worship and, and who you worship. You know, he says, how and who are vastly more important than where. She's saying, well, I gotta go to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter at this point. You know, as you look at verses 21 and 22, Jesus is now directing your attention away from the external question of where to the internal question of how and the theological question of who. Who should you worship? And worship is vital to life. Worship is assigning worth to something. We should probably say worth-ship. When we worship, we're, we're saying, you are worthy, God. When we're singing, when we're reading your word, he's worthy. Worship is important. It's it's real and it's, it's inside of us when it's based upon right thinking about who God is. So Jesus sums it up in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Those two words, spirit and truth, tell us how the how and the who of worship. We worship in the spirit and him and through him and, and worshiping the truth means we come with a right view of God. When we put those two words together, spirit and truth, it means that real worship comes from the spirit within and is based upon a true view of God. Worship must have heart and it must have head. Worship must engage our emotions and worship must engage our thoughts. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. You can't separate the two. So the woman, she responds here in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She believes. She believes that he's coming. She's heard the good news of the rescuer. But then Jesus completely blows her away. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This whole dialogue. And she's staring at him at the face to face. He says, It's me. I'm the one. The one looking at you face to face. I am he. And what does she do? 
How does she respond? You have to come back next week. No. We'll cover that more in depth, but she goes and she shares. She gets everyone. You've got to come see him. Now, this is a monumental moment for the Samaritan people because before Jesus came, a Samaritan could not know or worship God without going to Jerusalem and the temple. Now, now worship will not be relegated to just Jerusalem, but, but this woman right here could worship God. Jesus literally says to her in the Greek, I who speak to you, I am. We know that from the Old Testament, right? It's emphatic. I am. Jesus came so that we might believe. And through this belief, we would have life. Now at this moment, in this text right here this morning, in this service, and you're looking at me, I want you to know, God and, and Jesus means for you to feel graciously pursued. God is seeking a gracious relationship with you. This, and, and, and I mean it, this story points to that reality for everyone that is here this morning. God is calling to each and every one of us here in this place. And he's saying, I have life-giving water that will quench your deep soul. He deserves our worship. This time, we're going to partake of the communion service. So as the men come forward to serve in communion, would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the challenging and convicting text of John 4. I thank you for the work that you've done in my heart, my life this week. And I pray that your word would go with these people this week and that they would think deeply about it. God, you, you know that we haven't covered every single detail of this passage. There's work yet to be done. And I pray that your people here seated would study this week, would read it, would read the entire chapter, would, would pull out nuggets, things that, that I didn't necessarily say, that you would teach them and, and lead them and guide them to understand your truth even more. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you, that are searching for satisfaction in other places. God, I pray that you would make it clear to them that they will not find it anywhere but you. I pray that they would be so bold to come and talk with one of us that we could sit down and walk through the scriptures with them. Father, as we partake of this communion service, help us, remind us again of what you've done for us on the cross, that you paid our debt. We could never pay it. You've given it to us, a free gift. May we never grow tired of talking about this, of rejoicing about it. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.